Good morning. It's great to see you. So glad you're here. Glad for those that are worshiping us here on campus as you're joining us at home. We say thank you for being here as well. Grab your Bibles, your devices. Galatians chapter 4, as we just read, as Haley did so well this morning. And we want to continue through this chapter, finish up this chapter. So we'll teach through verses 21 through uh, the very end of the verse as well. And so I've called this today, which side of the family does that come from? Now, let me explain that to you for a moment, because Paul uses an allegory here, and it will make sense as, as we work our way through this. But that question is asked sometimes of you concerning things like physical features. And, you know, they say like you have your father's nose or ears or something like that. Though that's the side of the family that, that came on. And Reba always tells me that I have my mom's hair because I have this hair that is like it's super fine. It's almost like a baby's hair, Reba says. So that when I get up every morning, it looks like that there has been a full-blown battle on the top of my head. Now, you know what I mean, right? Yes, one side, yeah, I get an amen for some of you. It, one side standing up, the other side is laying down. Last weekend that we were in Atlanta with my son, our son and daughter in love, and then my two granddaughters. And so I got up that Saturday morning and came up for breakfast. And my oldest granddaughter, Emma, looked at me and says, Papa, what happened to your hair, right? Because so it doesn't always look like this. And so I got that from my mom's side. Maybe it's your stature, your height, or the way your body is shaped. Maybe it's even personality traits, right? You say things like, oh, I got my wit from this side of the family, or my humor, or those of you that have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, right? Then, you know, where you got that as well. And sarcasm is not a spiritual gift. I was just joking, right? And, and then, or we say about dysfunction in our family as well, that, oh, your temper came from this side of the family, or your lack of patience, or your perfectionism, or maybe that you uh, are loving, you know, and you're touchy. And so that came from this side of the family, because the other side of the family is very stoic. So, it's the allegory that Paul uses in this teaching for you and I. It's an example. It, it, it is uh, a way for you and I to connect to what he's going to say because these verses, as Haley read them to you, seem to be very challenging and very difficult. So I want to get right into it this morning. So Galatians chapter 4 and start with verse 21. And so this kind of sets the pace, I think, and, and the foundation for us. He says this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, I underlined under the law. It's really an important statement. Do you not listen to the law, which is also an important statement. So my first of a couple of talking points is this, under the law, question mark, or listen to the law, question mark. So who's Paul writing to? Because it's for context purpose, we have to understand that. He's writing to two groups of people. He's writing to the legalist, the legalists that are in the churches in Galatia, who would tell you that the cross is not enough. You have to add something to that. So what they're saying to those that in their, are in this region, in these churches in Galatia, he's saying simply this, they're saying simply this, that they would teach you that you're going to have to earn something, well, that God has said that's freely given to you. And so you are justified by your performance, not just the cross. So that's one group that he's reading to, those that promote legalism. And then he's, he's writing to those that have succumbed to the doctrine of legalism, to those that promote it and those who are practicing it, those that preach that God needs our help and those that believe that somehow that God needs their help. And so here Paul is 
referring specifically to the law, yes. But as you take this, and I believe that we can contextually use this as a broader brush, that it covers all those areas in my life and your life where we say to God, God, I think you need a little help in this area, so let me step in and help you. Now, stop looking at me with those eyes like you have never said that to God, right? You know you have. So let's clear the air and let's just see if this is what we need to talk about for a moment. Excuse me. So how many of you have ever even thought or said to God, uh, you know, God, let me help you with this in my life. Put your hand up. Good. Terrific. All right. Everybody else doesn't understand the question. So here is the thing. <clears throat> because you have. Trust me. And we're going to help you to understand that. As I, as I read through this, I thought, you know, these are some difficult texts. So I always go to someone I say is smarter than you are to help you understand that. So I began to read uh, some of the commentary and the writings that Charles Spurgeon wrote in the 1800s on this actual verse from the book of Galatians. And so in one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons in the 1800s, he uses an analogy, uses a metaphor, an example is what he does. Because he takes this thought where Paul says that you who desire to be under the law, and he said that for legalists, he said the law is like a rod that you hold over your head or other people's head. Well, I thought to explain this better, I think a two-by-four works better, right? Yes. And, and so, because if you've ever been hit with one of these, then, then you know that it gets your attention, right? And so, he says that the law is like a rod. It's like a two-by-four that's held over your head. In fact, when Spurgeon preached the sermon, he used, a very, he used this interesting legal term, and this legal term is, it's Latin, it's, it's in, in terrarum. And the, and the word or the phrase in terrarum is a legal term. And what it means is this, it means to get someone to do something you want, then you threaten them with something legal or legal action. And so it's the same thing that we say when we say, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to sue you. That's exactly the same thing. So he says the law is used by legalists. That way, it's like a rod or a two-by-four, and it's held over your head. And so if you don't do this, then there are going to be great, not just ramifications for it, but that you're not going to receive God's favor, and God is not going to love you like you think you want God to love you, and you're not, God is not going to please with you. So you live your whole life with the law of God hanging over your head. So what Spurgeon does, he says, what our mistake is that when we come to Christ, we think the law no longer has a purpose in our life. And he said, that's wrong. Because what happens when Christ comes and when Christ came is he transitioned the law. So the law is no longer the rod that is held over our head. But now the rod is simply the rod that guides us. It is under our feet is what he says. And I thought that was one of the greatest explanations, you know, that I've ever thought about how the law is used in our life today. How God's commands, how God's values, how God's direction for our life is used today. Because the law is no longer held over our head like a club, but now it is laid under our feet so that it gives us direction and it guides us in life. Is what it does. And so the law does have place in your life. 
So what Paul is saying to the legalists is he's not saying, hey, just throw everything out. And like I said a few weeks ago, it's sort of like the spiritual wild, wild west for your life. And you can kind of do whatever you want. It really doesn't matter because you live under grace. And Paul says, no, that's not the way. That's not the way this works at all. But he says, for those of you that are under the law, he said, do you listen to the law? So what he's going to do is he's going to say, hey, there's a place for the law in your life, but it's not a club over your head. But I want to explain this to you because you're not getting the whole point. So I want to take you to the Old Testament is what it is. So he says, we're going to have a Bible study. I want you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 16. And you know, if you've been here very long, you know, I love the book of Genesis. So I thought, wow, this is a great text for me today. And so I want to tell you the story about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac. And because the legalists were always claiming to be the back to the Bible group, and everyone else was away from the Bible, that he's going to take them back to Scripture. Why? Because Scripture from Old Testament and New Testament always points us to Christ. It always points us to the gospel and what God has done for you and I through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. So he takes him back to the Old Testament, and he's going to have a Bible study with him about Abraham. And it's so powerful that he does that because the legalists are all Jews, and he's going to talk to them about Abraham. And when you invoke the name of Abraham over Jews, oh, their ears perk up, and they stand up and listen because they're all biological descendants of Abraham, So, and, and so is the whole nation of Israel. So it gets their attention. It says to you and I, this is important that we need to listen to what Paul is saying. And so he goes on to say in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, he says. These women are two covenants. One is from the Mount Sinai, Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. So here's the thought. Does God need my help? Does God need my help? It's it's a huge question. Because when we find Abraham in the book of Genesis, he's a childless old man in his 70s, married to a sterile, seasoned woman in her 70s. Now you notice I called Moses, or Abraham, I called Abraham the man old, but I would not dare call Sarah old. I called her seasoned, right? Because I'm smart, right? I understand how this all works. Yes. And so God meets him. He gives a promise to Abraham and he says to Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a son. You're going to give birth to a child who will be the father of a great nation. And from that great nation that they will bring, it will bring the salvation to all the world. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham believes. He believes. So his faith in this promise was credited as righteousness to him. So as he believes in this promise, he's justified before God. You see the allegory between this and our salvation and what Christ has done in our life. And then it gets better that he and Sarah, their lives, their their very bodies that are as far as a reproductive aspect, is lifeless. God breathes life back into their reproductive system. And so you can see this allegory that how when simple belief in Christ justifies us, God covers us in his righteousness, and he breathes life back into our 
dead, sinful bodies. And I think it's such a great thought, but then it goes on that Abraham and Sarah believe the promise, but God's timing is not their timing. Now, have you ever noticed that God's timing is very seldom your timing? Have you ever noticed that? Yes. It's like an all-the-time thing, Mark. Absolutely. Well, God's timing is not their timing. Why? Because from the moment of the promise to that of the birth of Isaac, the promised child, 25 years. Now, if you're newly married and you got to wait 25 years for a child, well, that's one thing, and that's a long time for sure. But if you're in your 70s and you're going to wait 25 years for a child, that's a different story, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's where they are. So somewhere around the 15-year mark, Sarah decides it's time to help God out. Yes, and you've been there, and you will be there again. And so what does she do? She brings Hagar, this young Egyptian servant girl of hers, and she brings them, brings him to Abraham. This would make a great Netflix series, would it not? Because it's steamy. It's, it's probably R-rated. It really is. When you hear what's about to happen. And so what Sarah says to Abraham, look, honey, it's clearly not happening with me. So maybe you can make this happen with her. That's exactly what happens. I want to point out a point before I go any further. In this whole dialogue, Sarah has never stopped believing the promise that God spoke to Abraham. She never has. She fully believes within her heart that God will give them a son. This is an important part of all of this. She just thinks that it is on her to make it happen. She's attempting to fulfill the promise and the will of God through the flesh. And so she brings Hagar, this beautiful young Egyptian servant girl, to Abraham. Have you noticed in the scripture there's something missing? Abraham never gives up an argument to Sarah about Hagar. Have you noticed that? Why? Well, he looks at her and he thinks, wow, Sarah, this is a great idea, right? Yes. I'm liking that you have any more ideas like this, right? Yes. Yeah. Abraham has issues. Let's just put it out there, right? He has some issues. He's not perfect. Thank goodness that the promise was not based upon his faithfulness, but the promise was based upon God's faithfulness. And what happens? Hagar becomes pregnant by Abraham, and Ishmael is born, who does become a father of a great nation, but not the nation of promise. And then 10 years after that comes Isaac, who is the son of promise. Mark, we've heard this story before. Enjoyed it. Wonderful. What does this have to do with what Paul is writing to us? A lot. Because Abraham has two sons, both fathers of great nations, as I've already said. The first, a son born of the flesh, Ishmael, with Hagar. What follows Ishmael? Struggle and turmoil and war and persecution and false gods. The second son is born through the promise, Isaac. What follows Isaac? The salvation of all humanity. Here is the point. We're all related to Abraham, but there's two ways. 
There's two ways to be in this family because he has two sons. There's two ways for you and I to be in this family. One from a slave woman, Hagar, who it's it's like, God, you need my help. Move out of the way. God, I'm going to take care of this. And God, if you see a moment and you think you need to jump in to help me, then jump right in where you find a space to jump into my life. Or one from the free woman, Sarah, through trust and faith and total dependence on God. Two ways to be related to Abraham. So which side of the family is it for you? You see, Paul is not doubting your salvation. He's not doubting your belief in God. That's not the question here. He's saying all of you are related to Abraham. Yes, But which side of the family do your traits come from? Are you always saying to God, God, let me help you out and let me take care of this? Or God, there's no way that you can love me in the condition I'm in right now. So let me change things in my life. And then, God, you can love me. Oh, God, I really need you, you know, but just let me handle it for a while. Let me fix my marriage, God. Let me do this. Let me do all these things in my life. And if I need you, I'll give you a ring. Or are you trusting in God? Are you have faith in God? Are you totally depending upon God? Is it a work of the flesh? Or is it a work of the spirit in your life? So verse 25 says this. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is your mother. You think, Mark, those are perhaps two of the most confusing verses I've ever heard in the Bible. I don't understand what you're saying. Can I tell you what they are? They're fighting words is what they are. I can't imagine the first time that this letter was read to those churches in the region of Galatia. I can't imagine. Because here's what Paul is saying. You may think that you're children of Abraham, but the question is, from which side of the family are you on? Because if your thought is about helping out God... Somehow God needs you to be a a better person before God can love you. If this is all performance-based within your life, then you're children of Abraham, yes, but not of the promise, but you're children of the flesh. What God was saying to them, those Jews, that, hey, if you're legalist, then you're not children of Isaac, you're children of, of Ishmael, is what he's saying. And probably the first time the letter was read in one of those churches, when he made that statement, he ducked because he knew something was coming, right? Yes, something was going to happen at that moment saying that to those Jews in that congregation. So let me bring it to you. How many times have you come to God and you said to God, so God, here's my Ishmael, you know? I thought about running out to the nursery, grabbing one of your children, bringing them in here and holding them up like that and saying, God, here. But you would be highly offended if I referred to your child as an Ishmael, right? Yes. First Sunday, last Sunday or many Sundays, last Sunday. But it would have been bad. So how many times have you held something up to God and you said, God, here's my Ishmael. God, here it is. Here's the promise, God. I've worked hard on this. And Lord, I've worked to make this happen in my life. And God looks down on you and says, that's not the promise. That's your mess. And I'm not going to bless that. That's a work of the flesh and not a promise. Because the promise is not based upon you and what you can do. The promise is not based upon your faithfulness. The promise is based upon my faithfulness, God says. 
So what are you holding up to God this morning? Look, God, here's what I've done. God, here's how I have helped you out in this situation. And God says, no, that's your Ishmael. That's your work of the flesh. My work of the Spirit comes 10 years later. Are you willing to trust me? Because when we fail to seek God, here is the thing. When we fail to to embrace him as our Savior and we become our own Savior for our own salvation or our sanctification process or that of our relationships or whatever that you're struggling with in your life today, when you become your own salvation and Savior in those moments, then there is a result of that. There is. So Mark, what do you want me to do then? You want me to stop going to my counselor? Do you want me to stop seeing my physician? Do you want me to stop taking my medication? Is that what you're trying to say? And that's not what I'm saying to you. Here's what I'm saying this morning. And I believe Paul is saying it's when we remove God from the processes of our lives. It's when we remove him from the processes of our life. And so I look at this story and I thought, wait a minute, there's something really powerful here that Abraham and Sarah conceived the same way Abraham and Hagar received, conceived. Now, do I need to go into detail about that for you? I have a diagram on the screen behind me if you need to see that. No, I don't, really, I don't. It's the same way. The difference is... One was a complete work of the flesh, the other a work of God, but both involved human conception. So how have you removed God from the processes of your life? And you said, God, I'll take care of this. I can handle this. So here's what the result is when you remove God from the processes of your life. Havoc and disintegration in your life spiritually and psychologically and relationally. Let me read to you from the book of Genesis of the New Living Translation. I love this in chapter 16. Here's what it says. Because this is the result of removing God from the processes of your life and taking things into your own hands. So Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar, it says, and she became pregnant. And But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to mistreat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abraham, I love this part. This is all your fault. Don't you love that? Isn't that great? Oh, yeah. It all comes out in the washing. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And here's what he said. Um, the, or She said, I put my servant into your arms. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show us who's wrong, you or me. What happened to that being a good idea, right? And so he goes on to say, Abraham replied, Look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. And then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Oh, that was a great idea. God, I've got this. Are you sure you have this? Because when you remove God from your life, you exclude him from your journey, this is what it comes to. And I think we 
we fool ourselves with a lie and saying, ah, oh, you know, it'll, all, it'll just all come out in the end. It'll all work itself out and it's all going to be okay. Look at history. Look at Hagar. Look at Ishmael. Look at all those things that happened there. And can I tell you, it just doesn't always work itself out. When you remove God from those places and spaces of your life. So I think it's how do you approach God is the question, right? How do you approach God? Is this, a, is this a, uh, the fruit of your life? Is it Ishmael? Because if it's just Ishmael, what Paul says in this text is, because he talks a lot about slavery and talks about Hagar and slavery, and he says that it's just a continuation of slavery. What does that mean? That means that you become enslaved to works and you become enslaved to earning what God has given you freely. You're enslaved to this controlling spirit of your life even with God at times, because it's based and rooted in your pride because you think you know better than God. Today, I am winning friends and influencing people, haven't I? Yes, right? Yes. God, step aside. I'm going to Hagar this bad boy. That's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to just just watch God and watch me do this, right? And Lord, it's sort of like tag team wrestling, or I think that's called wrestling, wrestling, right? And and that, you know, God, if I need you, I'm going to reach out and, and tag you and you come in whenever I need you. But I got this, God, and you just watch me work, you know, and we're going to Hagar this bad boy and get it done. You've been there. Some of you are there right now. That you're struggling with this, this massive, I think, what seems to be this insurmountable issue in front of you. And whether it's that of the security of your salvation and that of God's faithfulness and not yours. Or, or, or whether it's a marriage that, that you find yourself in that you're trying to work out without God. Or, or it's, a, it's a vocational, professional thing in your life right now or just looking for some direction for your life, whatever it might be, and, and you find yourself right in that moment is where you are. You see, Abraham has faith. That's not the question. The question in this moment is, who does his faith lie in? That's the question, I think. Paul's not questioning my belief in God He's not even questioning your belief in God this morning, but he's is questioning your ultimate trust in God. That is what he's questioning. So verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So this thought is grace to the barren. Here's what Paul does. He quotes a text from the book of Isaiah 54, verse 1, and it is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that is given to Israel when they're in Babylonian captivity. It's a prophecy that is given 1,200 years after Abraham, 600 years before Paul writes this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. It's a prophecy. Is what it is. And in this statement, 
he says, more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And that sounds so strange, doesn't it? It does. But there's a powerful point. Because what God says through Isaiah is this. Now that you're helpless, now that you see that you're weak, it's in that kind of place in your life that my grace works, is what he says. Because the strong are busy relying on themselves all the time. They're all the ones saying to God, hey, you know, God, watch this. Watch, watch what I can do, God. And, and if I need you, I'll let you know. And so the prophecy of Isaiah takes us back to Genesis chapter 16, where God looks down on two women, one young and fertile, the other one seasoned and barren. And God chooses to save the world through the barren one. What an amazing God. What an amazing God that does that kind of thing thousands of years before you and I sit in this room this day, dealing and reeling with our own lives and thinking, I have to be strong in the middle of this for God to work. And I have to be in control of all this for God to work. And I have to have all the answers for God to work in my life. And what Paul is saying, stop. Because it's the moments when you don't have the answers. It's the moments when you are reeling in the middle of that situation. It's the moments when you don't have control of all of those things that perhaps God does his greatest miracles in your life. God chooses to save the world through the barren woman. And born to Abraham... And Isaac in their, Abraham and Sarah in their whole old age is Isaac. And from Isaac comes Jacob. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you read the genealogy of Jesus and you read all of those names. And somewhere between that of Abraham and, and that of the Christ, 40 generations plus to that starry night in a little no-name town called Bethlehem where more people move away than ever move in. True. Born to a peasant girl and a carpenter. is the incarnate Christ, fully God and fully man, savior of all mankind, a direct descendant of Abraham and Isaac. A promise made to you and I in the book of Genesis, realized through Abraham and Isaac, the promised son, fulfill that in Christ And what I realize is this, that grace is not just for the fertile Hagars, but for the barren Sarahs. So what blankets this room this morning is this overarching truth that Paul gives us. And we find in the book of Genesis in this narrative that if Sarah has a future, every one of us in this room has a future. Because you have to say, well, then who are the slaves then? Is it the weak? 
Is it those that can't save themselves? Or is it the strong? Is it the self-sufficient? Is it those that seem to be moral? Those that claim to always be good? Is it the religious? Is it the self-righteous? Those are the slaves. So I wrote something in my journal this week, and I wrote it to myself. I will share it with you. But I wrote it to Mark. After studying through this all week, I wrote, God is better at keeping promises than you are. I wrote that to myself, right? Because it's true. Amen? It is true. God is better at keeping promises than you are. Those that think they are better will always hate you for believing God is better. You say, Mark, what does that have to do with what you just said? It has everything to do with what I'm about to read to you in verse 28. It says, and this is where we bring this kind of plane to a landing together this morning. It says, now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise, he said. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And so I wrote this last thought for you this morning. Ishmael's will always persecute Isaac's. They will. You say, Mark, I don't have anybody really laughing at me. I don't have anybody, you know, trying to put me in slavery. I don't have anybody that's, 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 that's beating me and persecuting me physically. I don't have all of that. Well, I want to tell you, the war is just as much spiritual here as it is flesh in your life. Understand that. In Genesis 21, verse 8, here's what it says. It says, And the child grew and was weaned, talking about Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And commentators would say that word laughing means mocking. Actually, is what it means that he's mocking Ishmael. And when I look at this, I realize in context, this is not some outside entity that's laughing at Ishmael. This is family that's doing this. This is, this is an inside job is what this is. This is his half-brother that's laughing at him. And what I realize is this. The gospel is offensive to those that lean into themselves. It is. It makes, if you're leaning into yourself... If you want to know why you're always touchy or always hostile or you're always in a bad mood in your life, it's because you're leaning into yourself and you're not leaning into the gospel. Now, you're going to love me after this, right? Because it's getting worse, so hang on. Because what this does and why this makes those really hostile and testy in their life is because the gospel insists that your best works are useless before God. And if your justification is based upon works, then you're going to be hateful and judgmental and you're going to persecute like Ishmael did. But when it's based upon Christ alone that you're going to love and you're going to love others around you and you're even going to love others that are a different place in their journey than you are. And when I thought about this, I just had to get out of my system. I feel better now, right? But uh, when I thought about this, I thought people, people around us, family, those that are close to us, 
will not understand our faith and trust in God. Because to put your faith and trust in God supersedes and moves well beyond the things in life that are practical, that make sense to others around them. To say that God is the only one that can fix me, so I'm going to release this to God, and this is God's battle, and it's not my battle, and I'm going to trust him for these things in my life. I'm going to trust him that I'm redeemed, no matter what I've done in my past, that I'm going to trust that my salvation is secure in his faithfulness and not mine, does not make sense to those that are looking in around you. And you're going to be told that to have faith in God is foolish. You're going to be told that to have faith in God alone to rescue you is a very bad idea. That he alone can forgive you for the things that you've done in life. That he alone can take the brokenness of your life and create something beautiful that God would love you that much. Some years ago, I... I was just gravitated to this text in the book of Jeremiah 32 and 17. If, if you've been in church a long time, back in the, <clears throat> in the 80s, excuse me, that we actually used to sing this as a song. And it says, Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for him. So what's our greatest enemy today in the church? It's not always the world around us. And I don't think it's always secular, ungodly governments. I don't even think it's the decay of morality around us. I think our greatest enemy in the church is half-brothers. You say, Mark, that's the oddest thing you've probably ever said. It's the spirit of religion that creeps in and causes us to embrace a spirit of Ishmael that says, God needs help. And that is religion. And we've all been there because it's a broken world and we are extremely broken people living in the middle of it. So we've been there and you may be there again at some point in your life. I think the important thing is now that you know. And you know when that spirit creeps into your heart and your life because maybe you think that you know more than God or that you're not worthy for God to work in your heart and your life. And you say, God, I have this. I'll take care of this. And you start on that journey that will always lead us to the place that it led with Ishmael. Because that's where works of the flesh lead us. So what do I do? Paul says, 
at the very end of this chapter, he said, the scripture says, the scripture says, cast out the slave woman and her child. You say, Mark, that sounds so cruel. God is so loving and kind that if you go back to Genesis and read the story, so I have to tell you this, that God provides for Hagar and Ishmael in the desert when they are cast out of Abraham's house. He sends an angel because God loves us all. Amen? He loves us all. And he provides for them. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there has to become a time, a moment in your life when you say no more to the spirit of Ishmael in your life. There has to be a moment in this journey where you are today where you're in the middle of the ring and you're fighting this fight and and you know God is standing on the edge and it's like a tag team match and you look at God and you say, God, I've got this. You know, I'll let you know if I need you. Do you come to this realization that the fight was never yours to begin with? The fight always belonged to God. It was never your battle. It was always his battle. But you embraced it. And so what Paul is saying to us, come to that place where you separate yourself from that spirit that says to you, God needs help. And you trust God. So Mark, does that mean that if I do that, then then when I go to work tomorrow, then mysteriously that my boss has resigned and he's moved out of his office and he's gone because he's straight or she's straight from the pit of hell, right? And so, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Does that mean that I wake up tomorrow morning and, I'm, and I wake up to a different husband or wife? No, it doesn't mean that. And if that's the case, then you have committed another sin, big one, right? We can talk about that one later on, right? It may be 25 years. And all the joy of the room just left, didn't it? It's like gone. But in that journey for Abraham and Sarah, the ups and downs, the Hagars and the Ishmaels and all those kinds of things, that God is working the whole time. So trust him. Trust him. Start today and say, God, I surrender. I give this to you. And what you do is you separate yourself from the slave woman and her child, and you trust the God of promise. You trust him. So for a moment, would you pray with me? Take a posture of prayer this morning, whether that's bowing your heads or closing your eyes, or you're just sitting there quietly and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And let me pray with you and pray for you. Those that are joining us online, that you would take a moment to pray with us as well. Father, you have spoken directly to our hearts this morning. God, you have spoken to 
what we all struggle with at some time in our life where we take things into our own, own hands that don't belong to us anyway, but they belong to you, but we take them into our own hands. And whether by words or action, we say to you, God, we don't need you now. So let us help you out. And so, Father, we come to this place that we need to separate ourselves from that spirit of Ishmael, that spirit that somehow we're going to work our way to you to love us more and accept us more, that everything that we do in our spiritual life is performance-based because the world is based on performance. That you only love me and accept me if I clean my act up. That, God, I'm going to leave you out of the processes of my life so the things I've got to fix or need to be fixed in my life, I will take a shot at it, God, before I come to you. And, God, you brought us to a place of separating ourselves from that spirit in our lives and trusting you and leaning into you like never before. So, Lord, let these words, your words, flow over our soul this morning. Our soul that is tired of fighting. Our mind that is reeling with worry and concern. And let these words just pour over us. Like fresh, pure water that washes away all the dirt. May we embrace you, the God of promise this morning for every area of our life today. So God, let this be the day that we separate ourselves from the slave woman and her son and we lean into you. Thank you, Father. So just remain in that, remain in that posture of prayer for a moment, because I want to ask you a question. How many of you have something in this in your life this morning? You're here and you have something in, in your life this morning. You say, Mark, that man, I I've tried to work this out, but this thing is so huge that I just need to lay this before God. I need to give this to the God of promise this morning. And if you have something in your life like that, would you just put your hand up for a moment? Could you do that for me? Yes. I'm not saying that when you leave this place again, that everything will be okay in your life. But what I'm going to tell you is this. You can leave some of the weight of things in your life before the Lord by just trusting him as the God of promise. Take the timeline off of God that you placed on him. And allow this to be a work of the spirit in your life and not a work of the flesh. And trust him for that thing that you raised your hand for. Trust him today.
Because if God can change the world through a barren woman named Sarah, he can take what is ever in your life today and breathe life into it. If you will trust him. Thank you, Father, for those moments in our life that you breathe life into things that are dead. And we surrender those moments to you. In your name, we pray, amen.